Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Tonight we bring you the 2016 Sustaining Peace Conference and tonight's keynote talk and panel discussion on a new vision of women, peace, and security. So if I, if I can, I'd like to introduce my, my colleague and friend, Lema Bowie, who I've now known for, I don't know, probably 10 years or so. Um, Lema is an extraordinary, provocative, fascinating individual. You, you know where she's been, people know her well. She is the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She is a Liberian peace activist, probably, well, she's a mother of six first, right? Yes. <laughs> this just in, a mother of seven. <laughs> uh, well, this says ranging in ages from four to 21, but uh, yes, okay. Um, and an extraordinary peace activist, a trained social worker, and a women's rights advocate. She is a founder and current president of the Bowie Peace Foundation Africa. She also founded the Liberian Reconciliation Initiative and co-founder and former executive director of the Women, Peace, and Security Network Africa. She's also a founding member and former Liberia coordinator of Women in Peace Building Network and the West Africa Network for Peace Building. She currently serves as a member of many high-level task force for the International Conference and Development. She's a board member of the Federation of Liberian Youth, her leadership of the Women in Liberia uh, Mass Action for Peace, which brought together Christian and Muslim women in a nonviolent movement, which I imagine she will speak to today a bit, played a pivotal role in ending Liberia's civil war in 2003. And her work in that time is chronicled in two volumes. One is her memoir, Mighty Be Our Powers, which I would strongly recommend. And the other is in the documentary, uh, Pray the Be Devil Back to Hell, which is an extraordinary film that won the Tribeca Film Festival Documentary Award, Best Documentary Award a few years back, um, and, and does document Lema's story and the story of her colleagues and the women in Liberia, and the critical importance of that, woman, of that movement for Liberia, but for women's work on peace around the world. So with that, I will ask you to welcome uh, Lema Bowie. Thank you, thank you so much, Peter, and thank you um, to the AC4 staff and Earth Institute for pulling this together. Poor Josh trying to get me nailed down and getting my dates in New York and getting me to answer to emails and to all of you just for really trying to bring this together, I wanna to say thank you. Um, I'm really grateful to God tonight being here. I also like to recognize few individuals in the room, Jen Jenner. Jen met me like a gazillion years ago when no one knew me, a traumatized young lady just surviving war 
And I, I think the, she asked me, she tell the story of asking me, how are you? And three hours later, I was still talking about my experience of surviving the war. Um, I have my wonderful niece slash daughter, Limo Madison, here with me. Um, so when they talk about children, I technically lay claim to nine. Um, my niece is like the first child. First, my brother is like the first child. My father had a son outside of my mother's thing with him, thing, thing. And then um, Limu is my sister who took care of all of my children and made my work possible, but she passed a few years um, ago. So Limu is her only child, so that's my child now. And then five biological children, two adopted. The newest adopted one is four. We adopted him like seven months ago. There's this new wave of um, religion in Africa where people would place their misfortunes on children. And this little boy last year was thrown out of the only home he knew because they said he was a witch. So at 11.30 p.m., we went to pick him up and he has become one of our own now. So um, that's the, so everyone, my kids are afraid when people tell stories of children because they're like, are you bringing one more home? Um, I have an 18-year-old who said, this is no fun. I've counted, and all of my limbs, and my fingers and my toes, I've counted siblings on them. Mama, please, I don't want to use my head to count my siblings. So, um, but that's, that's the number of children that I have. I want to say thank you because this is a, a, a theme that is very close to my heart. The whole theme of women, peace, and security, and the vision of women building peace and being a part of the world. I grew up in a tiny community in Liberia where it was kind of like the place where children were psychologically damaged in a good way. We had Christians and Muslims living in that community, and you never knew who you were because we celebrated Ramadan, we celebrated Christmas, Easter, everyone wore dresses, and it was fun. When the lights went out, we came into the middle of the community, and we danced, and the adults were there to applaud us. You, when they, I tell the story of December was the time that the school year would end in Liberia, and around the 15th and the 17th was when the, you were given your report card, just before Christmas, really cruel. <laughs> and once you receive your report card, you had to go from one house to the other, regardless of who that person was. And you would go and kneel down and say, Uncle, I pass and you got a coin. Those of them who failed would go very quietly to those homes and say, and then you're trying to give it and go far because trust me, you're getting a smack on your head. So imagine going to 20 homes and being chastised and the way I put it was as children were celebrated when there was a reason to celebrate and were disciplined when there was a reason. So I grew up with that sense of community, the sense of everyone's problem is your problem. And then the war came. The war came and turned that world upside down. Immediately we were being told you can't interact with this group, you can't interact with that group because of different reasons. 
And I remember being a very angry person. Very, very angry. I was so angry. I, 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 why is this life so hypocritical? And that anger took me a very long way. And then some turns in my life, I was forced to interact with ex-child soldiers. And those were the group of people that I hated the most. I remember my first interaction with them. I walking into a room and they insulted me for one hour. And I stood there for one hour and took it. Because within my mind, I kept saying to myself, my life is tied to these losers. And because, I want, because the requirement for me to go back to college was that I had to practice social work with some group. And that was the only job that was available. And the next day, I went back. They cost me for 59 minutes. And the following day, 58 and 57, and finally they asked me, won't you go away? And I'm like, I'm never going away, so let's just get used to each other. But something in me that had been planted from my socialization began to bloom as I interacted with these young people, the seed of peace that had been planted. And that seed led me, and the anger led me to wanting to really discover what why first did we go to this place as a civilized nation, Liberia? Three million people, we kill almost 10% of our population. One million internally displaced. 500,000 refugees. The damaged infrastructure, damage on that nation is still there today. I remember the first time we took these kids to Ghana as refugees. My boys went to play soccer and went back into my cousin's house and went straight to stand in the fridge because that was their first time seeing a fridge and it was the place they thought they could cool their bodies. Children, and my son at the time would flush the camogue because it was so fascinating to him. Switching on and turning off the light was something like a game for them. Till today, some young children who live in that country have no clue that you can pluck an electric iron in the wall and press. All they know is that the iron sits on a fire and you use it to press your clothes. So this is a nation that went down and the economic said it was a place, a failed state, where neighbors were eating each other dogs and they were fighting for snails. So Liberia went down to the worst. And every time we saw this and the different things that happened, I would get so angry. And at one point in time, I remember going to Ghana and there was this interaction of West African women. So if you look at the 90s, that was the period of intense conflict in West Africa. Everywhere was embroiled in conflict. Even those countries who were not involved in overt conflict was in a state of conflict because we're so close as West Africans. Nigerians were peacekeepers in Liberia, Guineans. So the whole sub-region was just in total turmoil. So we got to this meeting in Ghana, a group of us women were about 20 of us, and they said we're going to talk about women in peace building. I had been volunteering and working with the trauma healing program of the Lutheran Church of Liberia. And I recognized that at that time, that was not a phrase that was known in West Africa. No one was thinking about women in peace building. I would go to these different meetings, 
and I would do some trainings. But even me, none of the participants of the training respected me because they assumed that I was there either to cook or as a logistician, not as a trainer. And so when we got to Ghana, we're talking about all of the problems that we had in West Africa and how women could create a space to start being active peace builders. For me personally, it struck a chord because the program I worked with at the time, beyond the ex-combatants, was working with security sector. And we would go to meetings with the security men to do trauma healing with them. And there would be maybe 50 participants in the room and two women. And the entire time, none of those women would speak for five days in that room. But after the session, they would come and engage me as the only woman on my training team to talk about that particular aspect of the training I can relate to, I want to talk about. And so, so why didn't you speak in the room? It's, no, 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 no. It's not supposed to be that way because also they were the lowest ranking officers in the room. So after we came back with the Women Peace Building program, I decided, gather some women, let's start the Women Peace Building Network Liberia. Later did we know that first it would lead me to where I find myself, Colombia. If anyone had told me in 2016 I would be standing here, I would tell them, stop kidding me, let alone getting a Nobel Peace Prize. But we just threw ourselves into this work, not because we wanted to prove something, but because it was the reality of the life that we live. So one of the days after we started first with the Christian women, we did the Muslim women and brought the whole group together. And in bringing this group together, we wanted to see I had a tiny bit of peace building experience from the few workshops that I had gone to. So one day we just said to them, let's have your vision for peace. And in that group, there were the ones who were very educated, and there were the ones who had little or no education. In my head, like people in all of the international community today, I already knew who would give me the best vision for peace. And those were, in my mind, the educated women. So everyone was supposed to go home and write a vision for peace for Liberia from their perspective. The next day, they brought this vision back. And the first person to hand me their vision was a young woman called Grace. Grace, at the time, was a foot soldier. That's how we describe her in the movement. Her job was just to take letters from office to office. She had not completed high school, so we didn't see any intellectual ability. She was virtually homeless, had nothing. As, as I stand here, I can still imagine her. Her white was very dull because we used to wear white. And she, she would wear these brown sandals, and her leg would be so dusty because if we gave her $10, for transportation, she pocketed it because she didn't know where her next meal would come from and walked away. So she came anxiously the next day and said, boss, I have my vision. And I looked at her and said, oh, let me have it. 
good thing was we had asked another group to look at it for us. And after they did the vetting, Grace Vision was the vision that we were supposed to use nationally. I could not believe it. But what she had done was she had taken her life experience and all of the pains that she's gone through as a result of the war and put it in that document. She could barely write. So she had someone sit. She wrote what she could and then had someone sit with her to read it and make it whether it sounded good. And she said, that was not what I was spelling. I wanted to spell this. And they helped her edit her paper, and she brought it back. Just last year, we were doing a training for young people in Monrovia, and she brought a copy of the vision and said, do you remember this? And I was all tears again. Because this is someone who understood. But after giving that vision, we took the vision and said, we must make at least part of this vision a reality. And that led to us stepping out in one of the most militarized societies and said we were going to build peace. And we did it in such a way that when I look back again, there are so many myths and misconceptions, especially in academic space about grassroots activism. So we started by protesting. And then every day we'll go out there and protest. And so what do you imagine a group of barely educated women coming from protesting? The next thing is to go home, right? Because they have to cook for their husbands. No. The next thing was to go back to where we gather every day and sit down. And this is how we did evaluation. What did we do right today? Okay, so we're in a room of all university people. Peter, is that evaluation? What did we do right today? What did we do wrong today? How can we improve tomorrow? So every day we did that. And every day we tweak our strategies and our tactics to fit something. So today we went to this place. We met with this minister of government, but some of the women were not serious. So how do we do something tomorrow to capture their imagination or to draw attention to this work that we're doing? So for two and a half years, every day we went to protest, every day. And one of the things that we would do is to sit in there until everyone got it. So sometimes from 5 in the evening till 10 at night. So eventually the husbands, women who had husbands, would come and stand outside and wait to escort us home because it was not safe for us. We did this work until peace came. When the peace came, but before the peace came, there was this whole process of designing the peace agreement. And when we went to the architects of the peace agreement, some notable institutions and organizations, including the UN and the US government, they said, there is no way we can use you all. You are not part of, you cannot be, and you don't have the educational, you don't have the political connection, you don't have this, you don't have that, and you do have the other. But we decided we would still send them everyday rating documents about how we thought the peace agreement would go. 
We asked them when the peace agreement was finally drafted to give a benchmark on its implementation. They said no. We took it into our hands. Gather some of the women who were lawyers and who could read and understand some of the jargons in the thing. Help us to simplify it to the level of the women that we work with. And once we had done that, we called 80 women leaders and said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten is what is supposed to happen in this country for the next one year. If you don't see it happening, protest. And so these women decided we, we continue to do this work. When it was time for elections, we got out there again, and we were doubted. I'm telling you all of this to tell you that it's not just a Liberian phenomenon. Women, peace, and security, and the work of ordinary women in trying to fast track peace in their communities is so overlooked even with all of the resolutions and the international protocols we have in place. Last year, we call it the year of our commemorative year for women, peace, and security. Last year was 100 years when the women went to The Hague, Bertha von Sutner, Suzanne B. Anthony, all of the great women. And that's where they started the Women League for Peace and Freedom. Last year was 20 years since the Beijing Platform for Action. Last year was 15 years for the UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And Peter talked about the 400-page global study that came out. I was, on one of the, I was on the advisory committee that helped to shape the study. With all of these milestone events, you would think that we are at a place in our world today where there's a recognition of the increasing role of women in the peace and security sector. You're in for a shock. Over the last few years, we've seen different things happen in different places. Today, in our world, this world that we live in, there are 692 militia and guerrilla groups across the world, 66 nations are at war with itself or its neighbors. In many parts of the world, places where conflict we thought had ended, they're re-emerging. I am 44 years old, and I look forward to the day where I will see Israel and Palestine, the conflict there, come to an end. In Syria alone, there are 97 militia groups operating. In South Sudan, one year ago, there were 16 militia groups. That number have doubled to 26 militia groups. DR Congo has 37. And we can go on in the Middle East. The Middle East has eight countries at war. But there are 229 militia and guerrilla groups, whereas Africa has 28 countries in conflict, and there are 203 militia and guerrilla groups. So again, like Peter said, there is this changing dynamics. When the South Sudanese war started in 2013, there were only two militia groups or warring groups, the government and the opposition group. From 2013 till today, 
we have 226. Almost every home that has an AK-47 is a militia group. And so the peace table is widening, not to bring peace, but it's widening for the selfish interest of people who own guns. The question we want to ask ourselves, so how do we end this? And where are the women in all of this? Because the women globally have been tested and proven that they can build peace. But what we see happening, especially after the launch of the um, global study last year, I gave a very sanitized speech um, sitting at the UN, Ban Ki-moon, um, um the one who authored the study. Um, I'm looking for the UN women staff that is here. Uh, she, we were sitting there, and after I gave my speech, the African women in the room said to me, Lema, that was not you. You were too diplomatic. But there was so much cynicism underneath everything that you said. Or that you, 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 you were, you, we just do not understand. I said, well, how do you expect me to say anything else? This is the one space in the world where we come and we think that something good will happen. So at the end of the launch of the global study, what we learned was that the women, peace, and security agenda had been tied to the counterterrorism agenda. So today you have groups like USAID and others who will put money into ending violent extremism and not community peace building. What you're seeing is a recognition of what women can do, but let's roll it back a bit and bring in the military track. So we sat in that room at the end of the launch of the study, and one after the other, we saw countries pledge 5 million, 50 million to the counterterrorism agenda, and 200,000 to the women, peace, and security agenda. And I was sitting there and asking myself, when you spend peanuts on peace, what do you expect the world to turn into? Let's take a step back and look at this country, even as we look at peace and security for women. Since 2011, I mean, since 2001, when the bombings took place, the Twin Tower, America has moved, unfortunately, from the welcoming place and gradually to the place of extremism. And someone will say, no, it's not that way. Oh, yes, it's that way. And you feel it and see it when you're dressed like me and pass through the airports. You feel it and see it when you're dressed like someone with a turban and pass through the airports. And the question we want to ask ourselves, even as we try to vision, have a new vision for women, peace, and security, when have we ever, and this is basic 101 um, conflict resolution, when have you ever extinguished a fire by using fire? It never happens. 
And if anyone says that's what the New York Fire Department is using, I want to see them fight a fire any day. But the response, the global response, not just to the 629 militia groups or to the 66 countries that are at war, is let's militarize communities more, let's militarize societies more, and let's kick out the people who are doing the actual work. Women have been tried and they've been tested, and it's no, um, we don't need to make any cases, any more case that when it's peace and security, they're able to unroll it into communities, not with guns. We live it, we saw it, and at the end of the day, we're able to unroll peace in Liberia. I'll tell you all a quick story. We went to see President Taylor. And Liberia at the time, there was a ban on um, protests and gatherings. There was a ban on different things. And so after we were out in the street for so long, we said we're going to meet with the president. We sent seven different or ten different letters to his office because he could not deny he did not receive any through his wife, through his pastor, through his brother, through his secretary. We just gave to anybody who we thought would reach him. On that day that we were going to meet with President Taylor, the security said to us, you can't come in if you're less than 25. Because the country was so militarized that no one believed that women would step out on that day to meet with him. And so I asked if we're more than 25, and he went, mm hmm, then you can come. I said, if we're more than 100, and he looked at me like, are you serious? I doubt if you'll be that number. So I whip out my cell phone, call the women, and say, line up and come down. There were 2,500 of us. And as the sea of white came down, all he could say was, oh my God, these women are really serious. One of the fighters pulled me on the side. He was in plain clothes, and they were about to take him to prison because he had refused to shoot one more bullet in that war. And he said to me, Ma, if I die, no problem. But you all cannot stop this work. We are tired. And from place to place that I've traveled and seen women do the work that they do in terms of the peace and security work that they do, you never hear we are exhausted. In the Congo, after going through numerous rape, they still reconsolidate, and they're ready to step out to do good by their communities. I find myself working with a group of Syrians. We go to very quiet location and try to put stuff together. And it is amazing to see how much these people, women and some men have gone through, but just their commitment to the peace and security agenda. And then you ask yourself, so where do we go from here? The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. 
This month's episode of Conversations from the Leading Edge featured a 30-minute portion of the keynote talk at the annual Peace Conference that takes place at Columbia University every March. The theme of this year's conference was Women, Peace, and Security, and the talk you just heard was the beginning of the keynote delivered by Ms. Lehman Bowie. You can hear the keynote in its entirety and watch the video of it along with the discussion that followed on AC4's website ac4.ei.columbia.edu.